we're going to be in jo- we're going to start in Joshua chapter 13 today, and I have some good news and some bad news for you today. Uh, I have some. Uh, the good news is, I think God has a lot to share with us today. Uh, and, and now the bad news is, on the surface, uh, this is going to sound like and appear to be something with all of the panache of a, uh, the IRS tax code, okay, to read uh, the DMV vehicle code, uh, something like that, a mortgage contract, something like that on the surface. But ironically, uh, given the events of the last 24 hours, I think what you're going to find is this particular text calls out our imaginations and trying to think about what it would be like if we lived in a land where God's actual promises and his law was lived out perfectly. And what a place that would be. A lot of people don't like reading this particular part of it. When we've done our Bible in 90 days campaigns and such, uh, if you don't die in the wilderness of Numbers or Leviticus, uh, usually you die here uh, in the middle of Joshua as you're going through, reading rapidly through the, the good book. Uh, and the book of Joshua is the first, you know, say, six, seven, eight chapters. is pretty interesting, pretty riveting stuff. But it's when you get past it, there's this wilderness of its own between the story of Achan, which we talked about last week, and then the infamous, choose this day the one you'll serve. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. That's next week's text, right? And all in between there is this filler, stuff about who gets what piece of land, uh, about what Levitical priests are supposed to go where, uh, about what the cities of refuge, where they're supposed to be, how many of them are they're supposed to be, uh, what they're for, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? And this takes up a sizable chunk of the book of Joshua. So most preachers assume that most people are not interested in that kind of thing. So they kind of pass from Achan if they stop there, because that's a very tricky text. Those of you who were here last week understand. But, but maybe they'll hit Achan in passing, and then they just go right to the end of Joshua, where it's, choose this day, the one you'll serve. Because that one will preach. I mean, if you can't preach that text, I mean, come on. But if you really want to know what God thinks, you've got to get the filler too. You know, the band Van Halen was known for their obsessive writer that they had. So when a band decides they're going to do a concert, there's a lot of contract swapping back and forth, and the band will come up with some stipulations, and they'll say, okay, we want, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, this kind of drinks backstage, we want this kind of uh, security backstage, this type of this and that and the other. And Van Halen was notorious for having their, uh, they wanted a big thing of M&Ms, but they didn't want any brown M&Ms in the bowl. And so they said in their contract that if a brown M&M was found in the backstage area, that the, co- that the concert could be canceled at full cost to whoever the, the, the promoter was of the concert. Any brown M&Ms backstage. So people kind of go, what a bunch of divas, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, Van Halen eventually later on, after they were, David Lee Roth was done performing with them, they stopped asking for that, and they interviewed David Lee Roth about it and asked him why they had asked for that. And he said, well, because we wanted to make sure that they had read the contract. He says, we would go into these places and, and like some place in Canada or something where they weren't used to having a concert of that size and scope and scale. So they wouldn't build a stage that could handle the weight. They wouldn't build, a, a, you know, could do the light specifications and all of that stuff either. So we felt like by putting that in there, we could tell if they'd actually read the contract or not. 
So I want you to kind of picture today's text as the brown M&M's piece of Joshua. Um, This is where we can really tell if a person's really looked at the book of Joshua. And on a a day like this where my heart is very heavy, I'm sure yours is too, uh, if we have ears to hear, I think God will have something for us here. We're not going to read all 11 chapters of it together. We're going to take the Greatest Hits album. uh, And we're going to go through, and, and really what this section symbolizes is once you get into the promised land, which is what they've done, what now? Who's going to live where? How are we going to do this thing? What regulations are we going to live by? How are we going to treat each other? Uh, What are we going to do for worship? How are we going to feed ourselves? How are we going to... I mean, imagine that, right? None of us really grew up a a pioneer. Some of us are old enough. We almost made it. But but others of us, we just kind of... We kind of show up and everything's civilized. You know, you move in and we know where we're supposed to live. There's houses here. There's freeways there. There's this and that. The people are walking into a completely open frontier. What do we do now? So when we don't read all of the Old Testament or we miss the Old Testament altogether, what you end up with is frankly a lot of construction that can't necessarily bear the weight of life. This text is really about if you had a land where God's promises were fulfilled and the people of God lived out the promises of God and the law of God perfectly, what kind of land should it produce? What kind of society would it be? Boy, I'm sure glad it doesn't have anything relevant for us um, today. So we should read this section very carefully. Every single word of God matters. And so taking the time to read it is very, very important. There are hidden gems all over the place. I, you know, just if you're looking for an example of this, a lot of people pass over the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea is a kind of small book. It's uh, in the Minor Prophets. Nobody really gives it a lot of mind. It's the most profound, riveting books in the entire Old Testament. But people don't read it. It's about... Uh, of God going to a prophet and saying, hey, I want you to marry a prostitute who's going to be unfaithful to you on a nightly or weekly basis, and you're to take her back every single time because that's what it's like for me to be married to Israel. I mean, what a powerful story. So, so you get to read this riveting story, but you miss it because you just assume, well, you know, it's a bunch of, you know, jibber-jabber or whatever. These chapters do more than just define property lines, if you will. They define the people who live in the land. Now, some of you are real estate agents in this church, and you're used to reviewing mortgage contracts and things like that. But for the average guy or gal, if you sit down to buy a house and they give you a stack of papers that thick, no, you're not going to literally read every word. Okay? Yes, I would. No, you didn't. You did not. Okay? It's a big pile of papers. uh, And basically, you're relying on your agent and, and the other people that are there to say, okay, this is what this says, sign here. Okay, this is what this says, you know, sign here. All right? You get bored with it even if it's your own home. Right? So if you wanted me to read your real estate contract, I'm not going to read it. I might read some of it if it was my own house. You have to understand that this is not their house, this is our house. This talks about how the people of God were given the promised land, how they lined up, and what they tried to live by as they went forward. In a sense, these are our mortgage contracts too. It wasn't a land of milk and honey just because it was good for dairy cows and bees or something. It was a way of describing an ideal that God had a dream. 
A land in which God's people and God lived in covenant with each other again. A land, if you will, even like Eden. It was almost like a do-over from Eden. Now you've got this new land, a new covenant people, and we can try a do-over. We can kind of wipe the slate clean. All the wilderness garbage is over. All the years of slavery are behind us. All the, 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 the murder and the terrible stuff that has happened in the past is behind us now. I've got a covenant people. I've given them a fantastic land. I've given them a great leader in the person of Joshua in whom there is no real guile of any kind. A land like Eden. One characterized by godliness, manifested in love and justice and worship. This is God's dream for this land. This new land was to be the standard bearer for a land that bore the watermark of God himself on it. It was to stand as a living illustration of what a land would be like if God's will was lived out to its fullest by everybody in it. So what would that look like, I wonder? What would it look like today? So the promised land was about 210 by 120. 210 miles long. Picture from Tijuana to Santa Barbara. And from about L.A. to Palm Springs in width. What we read then is this open frontier and how God's going to divvy it up and get this picture of God's ideal land. Because when we do, we understand then that we too have inherited a land. We too have been given marching orders from the Lord. And this snapshot gives us some insight into what a land flowing with milk and honey might look like. And so in God's dreamland, if you will, we see that it's committed to devotion to God Himself, love for God first and then one another, justice in a very broad sense, meaning we don't do things that are not right, and worship. We're fully dedicated over to God and nobody else. Land is given, we'll read in a second, to those who, who wholly followed the Lord. So Caleb, you may remember Caleb, he and Joshua went and spied out the land back when they were youngsters, uh, back when they were going to uh, attempt to, to, to take the promised land the first time around. Moses was, was there, Joshua and Caleb go, they're two of 12 spies. The 10 spies come back and say, oh, they're way too big, we'll never take them. Joshua and Caleb come back and say, we can do this, God is with us. Okay, well, Joshua now is the leader of Israel, they've entered the promised land, and old man Caleb shows up, 85 years young. And he says, I'm still as strong as I've ever been. <laughs> he says, go ahead and give me some land. I can defend it. And it says, he just, he's a fireball. Because the danger of giving him that land is that people are going to come and take it from him. Right? Even now we see how elderly people get taken advantage of. Because they're not as strong as they used to be. Caleb says, I'll take anybody that comes to try to take this. You can go ahead and give it to me. So Caleb comes and asks for his inheritance, which was promised to him in Numbers chapter 14, verse 24. And he says, I'm still as strong as I've ever been. Let me have it. I can defend it. Joshua 14, 13 and 14 says this. So Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave Hebron to him as a portion of land. Hebron still belongs to the descendants of Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, because he, whole, he wholeheartedly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Because he wholeheartedly followed the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. Because he wholly followed the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. That line pops up everywhere throughout this section. The land is given to so-and-so because they wholly followed the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. Because they 
wholly or completely or fully. They always were completely devoted uh, to following the Lord God of Israel. Now, there are three parties uh, left that get individual land inheritances. Hang in there. So you have the 12 tribes. They're all going to get a piece. But then you have three individuals. So you get uh, Caleb's daughter gets one for herself. Uh, you have uh, the daughters of Zalafahad. Don't know, but they get one. And then Timnath Sarah goes to Joshua himself. So Joshua gets his own piece of land. All right. Now again, the benchmarks for the land grants are those who wholly follow the Lord. Who wholly follow the Lord. Now that raises again the question of whether or not one believes that God, uh, life lived in God is actually one that leads to abundance or whether it leads to misery and pain and awful things. Whether or not God's going to be faithful to his promises. What do you think? We went to NBC Padres night the other night on Monday. I know, we had a great time. It was actually, in my opinion, was, was one of the funnest ones we've ever had. So we're sitting there. I've got my daughter Olivia, 14 years old, sitting on one side of me. I have been going to baseball games my entire life, since I was about five or six years old. Spring training, been there. Minor league, been there. Batting practice before major league games, been there. Been a season ticket holder for 10 years. I've been to game after game after game after game after game. Not once have I gotten a foul ball. Not one time. We're sitting there about the sixth inning. And the guy that's sitting next to Olivia, he was sitting in my seat when I first got to the game. We had to move him down a couple of seats. Picks up a ball and goes, hey, do you want this? She goes, sure. She takes it. It's a foul ball. Now, none was hit right next to me, okay? Or Olivia would have been sent two rows over flying by her dad, probably just so I could get to it. But he just picked it up. Something had happened where a foul ball had been gotten by somebody else. He probably set it on the ground, accidentally kicked it with his foot, or it, it dribbled down and went all the way down the rows until it landed where we were. This guy found it, picks it up, and decided to give it to my daughter, who's been to maybe a half a dozen in her life. Okay? Now, <laughs> um, I mean, she, I want you to just, you know, you know how that feels? Um, just as a person who's done that. Look, it's not that I would, you know, if a kid gets given a foul ball by another person, that's fine. But it's not, you know, that kind of warms my heart, right? That's like, oh, it's so, you know, America's such a nice place because old people give kids balls and stuff and, and everything. But, but my daughter is the least worthy kid for a foul ball. <laughs> like, I looked at that and I go, she did, she looked at it, and at first I could tell she didn't know what it was. And I was like, I mean, it's a baseball, but she knows that, but she couldn't tell that, that, was a, that was, that's an actual major league game ball with a scuff on it. A blue scuff, meaning it hit the seats, and the blue on the seats probably scuffed it, and whatever. And so she just gets it given to her. Okay, so I, I, I have not let this go. I was with her yesterday. <laughs> I was with her yesterday, and I brought this up, and I said, where are you keeping it? Because I want to use it in my sermon tomorrow, and she won't tell me where it is. It's hidden in the house somewhere. I got so mad, though. I go, I go, look, man, I've been coming my whole life to these things. I've never once gotten a foul ball. I mean, <laughs> I remember uh, we, we, I, I, when, you know, Peter Wilson, who used to be the worship pastor here, he and I went to our first baseball game together in the first inning. He's sitting right next to me. He gets a foul ball. 
Do I get one? <laughs> no, I don't. So I look at that, and my daughter here is given one, free of charge, for doing nothing except breathing and, and, and burning up my money on nachos, okay, and everything else she wanted. And I go, that's not fair. That's not fair. I deserve it. I'm the one who's gone to all the games. I've, I've paid for the tickets. I've paid for the parking. I've paid for the food. I've paid for the whatever, right? Why not me? Because in reality, it's, it's that guy's choice who he gives it to. It's not my ball. It's his ball. Right? So I have to imagine that when this stuff gets doled out, you've got people going, wait, 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 wait. We were the ones on the front lines. You remember? I know all 12 had a representative or whatever. But I mean, we were the ones that really had the swords out. We were the ones that, that really went to battle. So how come they get this land and we get that land? And the answer is, it's God's land, right? And he gives it to whom he wills. Now, he's not unjust. We're going to see why he does it. There's some reasons why he does it, but we can't miss that piece. And so to me, it seemed like an injustice, right? But what right did I have to the ball? It belongs to him. See, in the kingdom of God, you will live a miserable existence if you think, like the older brother and the prodigal son, that you've earned the right to be blessed. Okay. You haven't earned the right to be blessed if you've tried to earn the right to be blessed. Because part of it, as we've been singing this morning, it's the grace of God being given to you, stuff that you don't deserve. All of us have been given stuff we don't deserve. Right? I mean, and so when it comes to the division of the land, yes, there are times where God, in the parable of the talents, he gives one person five, one person two, one person one. Okay? Well, that's not fair. Well, who's giving out the talents? Whose money is it in the parable? So that's a key principle when we get to what we're coming to next. Because the next thing is once the land is all divvied out, they almost break into immediate civil war. Because we can't handle a promised land where we all get something to work with. So in Joshua 22, after all the land's divided up, word gets out in the west. So there's kind of land given to the eastern tribes, land given to the western tribes. Words get out in the east that the, or it gets out in the west that the people in the east have set up another altar for worship. One other than the one that stands before the tabernacle. And that's a faux pas. That's, they're not supposed to be another place. So the western tribes, they were around for the story of Achan and a bunch of other stuff that's gone on. And they're afraid that this affront to God may cause God's wrath to fall on them. So they gather to make war on the tribes of the east. Because they're afraid that basically they've done this abomination and now we're all toast. If we don't do something about it. So they go to the east and they say, hey, look, guys, I don't know why you did what you did. Look, if, if this is about land, we can talk. We can, we can give you some of our land just to make it good. But you can't have that set up. It's an abomination to God. But they're, they're showing up with their chariots and their spears. Ready to do battle. So then the tribes of the east proclaim loyalty to God out loud. And they say, if we've done anything against God, take our lives. And then they explain why, why they've done what they've done. So we decided to build the altar, not for burnt offerings or sacrifices, but as a memorial. 
It will remind our descendants and your descendants that we too have a right to worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and peace offerings. Then your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no claim to the Lord. If they say this, our descendants can reply, look at this copy of the Lord's altar that our ancestors made. It's not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. It's a reminder of the relationship that both of us have with the Lord. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord or to turn away from him by building our own altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, or sacrifices. Only the altar of the Lord our God that stands in front of the tabernacle may be used for that purpose. What they're saying is we don't want to be forgotten. We don't want our kids to be forgotten. And we don't want them to forget God. So this isn't here as an alternative place to worship. It's just a signpost. It's a, it's, a, it's a copy. So that when our kids, as they get older, nobody can say to them, hey, you don't belong here. You're from the East. They can say, I don't know. See that? That's a reminder that we were all in this together at one point. And so what ends up happening... Next, this is Joshua 22, uh, 33 and 34. It says, All the Israelites were satisfied and praised God and spoke no more of war against Reuben and Gad. And the people of Reuben and Gad named that altar Witness. For they said, It's a witness between us and them that the Lord is our God too. And tragedy is avoided. And the West actually accepts and approves of the altar they've made. It's called the Altar of Witness. To witness to the unity of the tribes. To make them, if you will, one nation under God, not necessarily in the American sense, just using the phrase so you understand what we're talking about. The importance of making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is huge. Ephesians 4.3 Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. So this little kerfuffle that goes on would be a good example to us when we hit conflict ourselves. That maybe just going out and attacking the other side is not the best way to go. That some bit of caution is warranted. I mean, let's imagine for one second that they just hadn't talked at all. Or they didn't buy it. So you come into the promised land. you got the land division. God's all ready to see his perfection realized. This perfect land, great people. The laws are laid down. Everybody understands And then the war breaks out. Boom. Between the east and the west. Right away. Do we understand how differently the history books might have read if that took place? Do we understand how it would have grieved the heart of God in such a unique, profound way if it had? After God gives them each land of his own volition, out of his own grace... To have them immediately take it and use it as a way. And use him, by the way, as the spear. Use him as the the volleyball for the reason that they decided to go to war against each other. Now, in times past, Christians have taken a, well, act, act first and then think about it later. Ask questions later policy on matters of Christian practice. That's led to a lot more schism than was necessary simply because they heard that so-and-so was doing this and that. And in doing so, they sacrificed one another on the altar rather than the altar standing as a witness to our unity in Christ. See, in the land of milk and honey, effort is made to maintain unity first. If they simply waged war on the east, how tragic that would have been. That when you are in the kingdom of God, 
we have a responsibility to practice love and unity if we take a stake in the land that God has given to us. That's part of what it means. And so, if you will, on a weekly basis, when we take communion, that's our altar of witness. It's the place everybody comes together. West, east, everybody, and we all go, oh yeah. Oh yeah, we're one. I get it. I forgot in some cases. Justice, characteristic number two. The Lord designed the promised land to have six cities of refuge. It's outlined in chapter 20. These cities of refuge were basically, uh, their intent was uh, that when an accident happened out there. Uh, this is frontier, right? People are doing stuff. There's wild animals out there. Somebody's, um, you know, accidents happen out there, things like that. Uh, and so God wanted these six cities of refuge set up so that when an accident happened, the person, rather than being just summarily murdered by the, by the victim, by the victim's family, they could go to those cities of refuge and stay there until they could get a fair hearing. So they were set up in different districts so that if not, not so that they could hide in, and it's not a safe zone where you stay indefinitely. It's basically a safe zone until you get a trial in front of people. So if it turns out it wasn't an accident, you killed somebody, then you suffered that fate. But it's to keep more injustice from being done as a reaction to something that's tragic. Does that make sense? This is Joshua 20, 1 to 4. Here's how it's described. The Lord said to Joshua, Now tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed Moses. Anyone who kills another person accidentally and unintentionally can run to one of these cities. They will be places of refuge from relatives seeking revenge for the person who was killed. Upon reaching one of those cities, the one who caused the death will appear before the elders of the city gate and present his case. They must allow him to enter the city and give him a place to live among him. All right, so again, what, okay, well, why would, why would he do that? Well, because if a person accidentally killed somebody and you murdered them because they accidentally killed somebody, is that just? You intentionally killed them because they accidentally killed so-and-so. God doesn't seem to think that's very just. So he sets up these cities of refuge and says, so they are to go there and they go to the elders of the city and they'll hear the case. Okay, And if they're legit, then they come in, they give them a place to stay among them. Now, I guess one of the, there are several different ways we could apply this. Um, the land in which we live, so to speak, uh, is to be a just one in God's mind. It's to be one where justice is carried out on behalf of those who are victimized by others, but also uh, that the people that might have accidentally gotten caught up in a bad system, so to speak, get a hearing. So God has a deep concern for justice, no matter what the situation is. This doesn't mean, like, again, I want to be very clear about this. These cities of refuge are not a place where, okay, if I can make it there, then I'm good to go. That's not what God's setting up here. It doesn't mean some Johnny Cochran land where everybody gets away with everything. It's not that. It's a land where everyone gets to plead their case before people of the highest ethics and standards so that rash, deci rash decisions are not made that are unjust. Spiritual discernment. Becomes important then. 
Where do you find those people that have that kind of ethic? Where would we find those people? Where are those people? Right? The ones that you go, nah, there's no political motive here. There's no um, agenda. But they're really trying to seek the word in the heart of God and how it happens. Well, scripturally, by the time you get to the New Testament, Paul seems to think the church is where you find those people. First Corinthians chapter 6, it's one of the reasons he says, hey, why, why would you go to a secular court and take your issues there? Why don't you guys figure it out amongst the family if you can? He needs to go there. Now, it doesn't even mean that just because a person is in leadership that they're ethical. Does that make sense? The Pharisees were blind guides for years. Things are not always that queer. But one of the functions of church leadership is spiritual discernment. Righteous spiritual discernment requires fairness and a hearing. And that's how things ought to be handled. In God's mind, if something goes wrong, there has to be a way to solve that that does not, invo- does not invite civil war and does not allow that case to go into the hands of somebody who has no soul or ethics. And so I, for one, when I look at that, I go, that sounds really good to me. It sounds quite beautiful and breathtakingly so, actually. To think of a land, as God does, where hopefully people aren't killing each other anyway. But if that happens, then instead of everybody going into civil war against each other, here's how we're going to handle it. You're going to go ahead and you're going to go to, there's six cities of refuge. They go to those cities and the, the people of the highest levels of integrity and experience are the ones that handle making the decision there. Worship is the next one. <clears throat> God designs the promised land to have 48 Levitical cities. Okay, so this is uh, outlined in Joshua 21, 1 to 42. All right. So basically, uh, they'll be just like he did the six cities for that. There's 48 for uh, Levitical priests to be spread out all over the promised land. Okay, and the idea here is he wants everybody to have access to, for worship purposes, to the ability to go, have their sins atoned for, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and to be able to find those people. So the effect of uh, taking the... Um, taking these cities and the pasture lands from each of the tribes, so every, all the tribes have one of these, is that the Levites get scattered throughout all of Israel. Uh, they are placed so that as many Israelites can get to them as possible. Now, why would God do that? He knows the propensity of people to fall into idolatry. He just does. I mean, imagine this. Uh, I'm not saying this is what ought to happen or anything like that, so I'm just drawing a comparison. But imagine that instead of churches kind of being scattered out all over the place, you almost couldn't go anywhere without one being there. In every neighborhood, every whatever had one. I mean, that would be odd, wouldn't it? Now it's pretty easy to avoid churches or places of worship in general. So in here, God is saying, hey, look, I want these set up in these different places so that my people's hearts stay pure and oriented toward me, and they don't fall back into idolatry. You can see the fear of idolatry pop up in that little story about East versus West, where the West goes, hey, this is idolatry. We recognize it for what it is, so we're going to go make war on them 
It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down. Slow down. Slow down. How important is worship to God? Well, what happens when people start worshiping something else is one way to ask it. Another is more on the positive end. Okay, when we keep God as God, what good things happen? Devotion, love, justice, worship. These are kind of the pegs out of those 11 chapters, okay? That's what the promised land is to look like. So in Joshua 21, it says this. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors and then took possession of it and settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side. What does that mean? That means people weren't making war against them. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had solemnly promised their ancestors. None of their enemies could stand against them, for the Lord helped them conquer all their enemies. Not a single one of all the good promises of the Lord had given uh, to the family of Israel was left unfulfilled. Everything he had spoken came true. Everything he'd spoken came true. So when it's called the promised land, it's not just the land. It's the promises that went with the promised land. Everything that he had promised came true. And so lastly, let me read this text and then we're rounding third. But be very careful, it says, to obey all the commands and the instructions that Moses gave you. Love the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, obey his commands, Hold firmly to him. Serve him with all your heart and your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away. And they went home. Okay, so here it is again. Hold firmly to him. Hold firmly to him. What does that look like? That that looks like a person whose heart and ways, not just sentimental thoughts about God, but their actions, their ways, the way their life is set up, the inclinations of their heart are set up in such a way that they can hold firmly to Him. When things are bad, they hold firmly to Him. This is a dated reference now, but you guys remember the movie Twister. Those of you who haven't seen it, go home and watch it. But at the end, you know, they tie themselves to that that pipe and hold on to it while the tornado sweeps right over them and they go up into the middle of the tornado, but they're hanging on to the pipe. They're tied to the pipe so they don't go anywhere. That's kind of the image that comes to my mind when it says, hold firmly to him. Any of you ever tried to give a child who's very clinging to somebody else? Okay, that's what it's like. Okay, all right, come on, let, let go, right? They keep holding on to your neck in a pool. You want to get them to swim, right? And they ain't going anywhere. Go to a diving board. Stand next to them and hold their hand and say, all right, on the count of three, we're going to dive. Their hand's not going anywhere. They're not letting you go for a million dollars, right? Hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast. Okay? That's his charge to the Israelites. Now you're here. We survived the temptation to civil war. Everyone's got their land. We have our marching orders. Worship, devotion, love, justice. Now, here's the charge. Hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast to him. But it doesn't seem like it's working. Hold fast to him. Hold fast. Hold on to him. But the forces pulling me away are so strong. Hold fast to him. Hold fast. 
I remember once I was doing some hiking, and probably doing something I shouldn't have done. I was climbing up a, a face of a rock. And I started to slip, and I grabbed on one little piece of rock. Okay, my hands are not the strongest hands in the world. They're good for playing the piano or something, but they're not, they're not real strong. I have long, kind of skinny fingers. Okay, and at least for a split second, I was able to grab on tight enough that despite the rather serious weight dragging me down, the rest of me, I was able to actually, for a split second, hold myself up with just one hand like this. It wasn't like I had a bar to grab around. It was like that. You know why? Because I wanted to. Because I knew if I didn't, I was going to get really hurt. Hold fast. Hold fast. Oh, but this man, you just have no idea how hard it is, what a struggle it is for me to get here at 10 o'clock every Sunday morning. It's all right. Hold fast. Did you read what people are saying about us on Twitter? Hold fast. But if we don't do this and this is going to happen, just hold fast. Hold fast. Hold on to them like a, like, a, like a clingy kid who's terrified of being in the arms of anybody else. That's what we're supposed to do. Um, we're going to take communion here in just a moment, um, but I want, I want everybody's full attention for a second. And this stuff that's going on in the world we're in, you know, um, you know, it keeps getting closer and closer to me personally. I have a friend who lost a daughter in one of these. A uh, synagogue shooting that happened here in Poway was three doors away from where my daughters go to theater practice. Yesterday, I was in an airport about 20 miles away from where the guy lived that was the shooter in El Paso. Uh, and, just on, and then every time it happens, having done as many sad funerals as I have over the years, I know, I, can, I just can picture the pain of the families that are involved. So I didn't sleep real well last night. And then you add to it this propensity of everybody because they're hurting to just simply uh, lash out at whomever, whatever they can. They're not thinking, well, the people in pain say, unkind things. Uh, most of us don't come up with our best solutions when we're the most devastated or angry. That's usually when we say the most hurtful things and the dumbest things that we have to offer people. Um, but I want you to understand something. That last little admonition is probably the best advice that I can give you and that any pastor or Christian worth their salt could give you. Is that just to hold on. Hold on to God. Um, it is easy to come up with very easy little solutions for things. Um, but the reality is we live in a very broken place with a lot of brokenness, period, relationally, people on all sides, hating each other for a variety of different things, which makes coming together very hard. It's almost like East and West and Joshua. <laughs> you know. And we, But we can't seem to get together to have the conversation we need to have because everybody kind of hates each other. So we're supposed to be different. Okay. We're, we're, we're people that are supposed to act a little bit differently. Not so much in not having opinions or whatever, but being able to behave in a way that echoes the promised land, what it was supposed to be like. Um, a land of love for one another, worship, devotion to God, and justice. And so when we do that, we don't... We don't when people talk about how 
uh, you know, Christians are all this way or they're all that way or whatever, it's okay to, to remember that that's not really the way that God set it up to be, and that's not always true. That might be true of that guy or that gal, but it's not true of all my brothers and sisters. Um, and it's good for us to come together and to, uh, on days like this, to, to, uh, to be reminded of that. Um, even though, even though the weirdest uh, among us, um, uh, I, I want to love as fully as I possibly can. And it doesn't matter what political party you're part of, it doesn't matter what skin color you are, or whatever. My job as a pastor is to try and call you to a better way of life and to call myself into a better way of life. So when we gather around the table, I'm going to offer a prayer, and it's going to be, um, uh, it's not going to orient itself around social policy. Um, and, and the reason is, uh, you know, the New Testament doesn't talk a lot about guns. It talks about love. And it talks about coming together. Uh, so the question becomes then, okay, how do we implement the broader, deeper principles of Scripture into what we, how we live together in this world? Um, so let it begin with me. I want to be a, uh, a person that, that doesn't necessarily further things that would displease God and attitude and a principle. Uh, but we've got people that are hurting, and we want to lift them up in prayer today. Uh, and we've got a very divided world, and we want to pray for it today as we think about what am I, as we, as we beg God to actually let this become a land of flowing with milk and honey again. So those who are going to be passing the elements, go ahead and, and take your spots um, and grab the, the bread and the cup. So the invitation this morning is very simple. Hold firmly, hold fast. Like a clingy kid who doesn't want to be in the arms of anybody else, cling to God's teaching, cling, cling to, his, um, to his word, cling to your brothers and sisters who are following Jesus the same way. Um, and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to know when to speak and how to speak, when to act, how to act. And as we do, let's gather around the Lord's table now as we take the bread and the cup. May we pray. Our Heavenly Father, may the one whom the winds and the storm obey be among us now as never before. We confess our sin to you. That we've taken a land that you gave us for good and have messed it up royally. We have devalued human life and created a world in which neighbor is divided against neighbor. Our words have pulverized our hope and driven us against one another rather than toward one another. We have been careless with the world that you've given us to steward, though it belongs to you. We have coddled ungodly thoughts of one another based on gender or race or political views and other categories that are eclipsed by the unspeakable majesty of our adoption as your sons and daughters. So lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. But it seems to us, Father, that we are lost right now, so we ask that you find us here in our time of need and bring light into our present darkness. We ask that you show us the way, 
and we promise to follow. May this land become a land of devotion and worship and justice. That your promise might be fulfilled and that we would stand in awe of your power. And we look forward to the day when you wipe away every tear from our eyes and the lamb lays down with the lion. Until then, Father, we take this bread and cup in memory of Jesus Christ, our lion and our lamb. Amen.